Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of the podcast is not brought to you by anyone because it is a premium episode. It is for premium subscribers. Thank you for signing up. I appreciate that. Uh, this is why uh, the show doesn't have a sponsor. This is why I just start talking at the beginning, rambling about my appreciation for you rather than plugging uh, a service or a product that you may or may not be interested in. So uh, I hope you enjoy today's show. I hope that you taunt your friends uh, via social media about the fact that you got to listen to this while they uh, have not had the opportunity because they failed to subscribe for $2 a month. Tell them to do that. Please spread the word and uh, enjoy the program. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, stupid, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. folks, welcome to this uh, special edition of Other People. My guest today is Gloria Harrison. Do you like how I opened without the uh, traditional? Uh, I didn't do the traditional, uh, this is Other People, this is it. I didn't do that because it's a special edition. I feel like I got to change everything because it's a special edition. My guest is Gloria Harrison. She's a writer. Uh, and she is a, a longtime contributor over at the nervousbreakdown.com, my online culture magazine and literary community. I've known her uh, for years. We met online. We've met in person. I've read her stuff uh, for a long time, stories about her life, which, uh, as you're about to hear, has been interesting. And uh, I should mention as well that Gloria has been featured uh, on This American Life, the uh, great NPR radio program. It happened uh, back in May of 2013. She read one of her essays, which was originally published on The Nervous Breakdown. Uh, it is called Let's See How Fast This Baby Will Go. And uh, if you want to listen to Gloria on This American Life, you can do that. It was episode uh, 494. Episode 494 of This American Life, which is available online. So uh, how to preface this? How do I introduce this? Uh, this conversation that you're about to hear. You know what? I don't think I should. I think I should just let you listen to us talk. <laughs> and uh, more to the point, I think I should just let you hear Gloria tell her story. Okay. 
Uh, and last but not least, and uh, with, with great sincerity, thank you for being a premium subscriber. I appreciate that. Thanks for throwing a couple of dollars my way. It helps uh, keep this show going. And uh, I'm going to try in the weeks to come to provide you uh, with some special content for subscribers only from time to time. All right. So uh, here we go. This is my conversation with Gloria Harrison. I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, I live in the southeast part of town, which is not the rich part of town. Um, I am currently sitting in my bedroom on my bed in my robe, which I've been wearing pretty much nonstop when I'm home for a month now. Okay. And <laughs> you're on you're on leave. Yeah, I'm on leave. Uh-huh. And I, let's, let's, uh, talk, let's discuss this briefly because I, I kind of want to do like a fuller narrative picture of you because I think it all sort of ties together. But like, let's just start with this most recent experience and what um, has you on leave and in your robe perpetually. <laughs> well, um, in mid-November, I went in for my every two-year boob and lube. Um, and this is like a, a gynecological appointment. Yeah, my well woman exam. Okay, that just seems so sterile. Yeah, I mean, but boob and well lube, is, boob, and lube boob and lube is definitely preferable and like more fun to say. But I don't. I just want to make sure that like uh, my male listeners who might not be, <laughs> I don't know. I guess most people can get that, but you know, right? Um, and because uh, it used to be that you go in every year. And standards have changed. This becomes important, actually, because the whole thing was so intensely fucked up. Um, so I have a regular family doc, and, and I don't want him seeing my vagina because I kind of think he's handsome. And also, I don't um, want anybody who doesn't know what a period cramp feels like to talk to me about my gynecological health. And so I just, I was at an, I have this mystery side pain in my lower right quadrant. And, um, which also becomes significant in a second. And I went to him and we were talking about it and I said, well, is it time for me to go for my annual exam? And he said, well, yeah, the protocol is every two years now. So it's been two years. So I said, okay. So I made an appointment with my gynecologist and I went and um, changed into my robe and I'm sitting there and she walks in and she said, well, you know, actually the standard recommendation has changed and it's every three years now. And I was like, well, thank God I'm sitting here naked on your table and um, she said, but, you know, while I'm here, is there anything you want to discuss? And I said, you know, just the usual stuff. She said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, I have this mystery lower, you know, right side pain in my lower quadrant. Nobody knows what it is. I said, I have massive panic attacks. I have, wait, you, know, you Wait, you were having panic attacks? Like, because uh, of this thing? You felt like they were tied together? Well, you know, here, so maybe. Um, I still don't know because the panic attacks just came out of nowhere. The mystery side pain just came out of nowhere. They kind of started around the same time. And I've lived through apocalyptic stress right. in my life. So it baffled me the, that I that I suddenly started having panic attacks because I never had anxiety Okay, so what, how are they manifesting? Like when we're talking pain, because I've had lots of people on this, because I talk to yeah. writers, I've had lots of people on this show who've had panic <laughs> attacks. And, right, uh, right. They, you know, are we talking like full-blown, like I think I'm having a heart attack, like fetal, dry mouth, like what was happening? You know, it, it, the first few times, sure, sure. Um, uh, actually, the very first time, this is funny, the very first time I had one was the day after the first Portland-based T&B 
um, live experience that we hosted here with Art Edwards and uh, Jim Frost and Meg Warden. Okay, so the nervous break, the nervous breakdown, like live reading thing. This was a while ago. Yeah, yeah, this was uh, three years ago, coming up in just a week or so. And I just remember this because I took the next day off work because I knew I was going to be pretty sick. Um, and it was the next morning and I was drinking coffee and all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I think I'm having a heart attack. And you know what? I'm 37 now. So I was 34. Like I can't be having a heart attack. So I called 911 and they came and by the time they got there, everything was fine. And they're like, you're fine. You just had a panic attack. I'm like, no, no, no. Check your check your gadgets again. There's something wrong with me. They're like, you know, you have a panic attack. It's so fucking. It's and so it crazy just, to me that because that that is the that is that is what a panic attack is. People think they're dying. Well, the first time, so I've learned how to navigate them. Right? There's a sense I can get in my body, like it starts in my chest. I've heard some people say it starts in their gut. Some people say it starts in their head. Some people say their mouth goes dry. It manifests physically differently for each person who is lucky enough to have this is part of their life. But but there's a tell. There's like a physical tell that each of us sort of have, right? Like, like sort of like, like, like people who have like epilepsy will like have like a certain smell come into their nose or something. Before right. They, yeah. Yeah. I just smell toast and taste pennies. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I manage them now. So anyway, I'm at this gynecological appointment and I'm just like running through this list and she's like, wow, that's, that's a large list. And I'm like, it is. I said, but here's the thing, because I've been sterilized. But um, because of all of the abdominal trauma I suffered in the car accident, okay. in which we're, we're going to get to about. that. We're going to get to that. Yeah. But because of that, I was not, when I wanted to be sterilized, it was not a candidate for, um, for regular tubal ligation, something about uh, scar tissue and cutting through a bowel or something. So there's this new fancy pants procedure called Esure, um, which is relatively new. And what they do is they go in through your uterus. Um, and insert these tiny, teeny nickel coils into your fallopian tubes. And um, and then the coils adhere to your fallopian tubes with scar tissue, and then they occlude your fallopian tubes so that the egg can't get in there. So I had the sure procedure done right around the time I, the panic attack started and the side pain started. And... Um, God, I feel like your grandma talking about gout. I'm, but but <laughs> <laughs> this is all significant, right? So so I, I here's the thing about health, though. Correct me if I'm wrong. When you're not getting answers from a practitioner, you go to the fucking internet and you come up with answers on your own. Yes. Yeah, no, it's the worst. It's the, it literally is like the source of like some of the most acute dread I've ever experienced is going on the internet and Googling health stuff. So then I was like, okay, well, you know, they had a really difficult time placing this Esure coil in my lower right fallopian tube. And Erin Brockovich, oddly, now has a class action lawsuit that she's bringing against the company that makes the Esure product. And all of these women that have this mystery side pain were, you know, teaming up with Erin Brockovich. So I was like almost ready to sign up with Erin Brockovich. Like I go into my gynecologist and I'm like, look, I don't know what this mystery side pain is. I was, saw a gastroenterologist, and they told me to have more fiber in my diet. I'm like, I don't think it's fucking fiber. <laughs> I'm like, I'm tired of being blown off. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. She's like, okay, what do you want from me? Which was great, right? Because I'm like, I just want to be heard. So, well, I would ideally like you to just look and see where the coils are. 
are they adhesed to like my bowel wall? You know what I mean? Are they like poking me? Something? Is it that? Because you guys aren't coming up with answers, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start reaching. She said, sure. She said that seems reasonable. So I go in for my annual exam a year early. I finally find someone to listen to me after two years. Um, and wait, wait, you went, in, ordered, you went in a year early. I thought when you went to your general doctor, he was like, it's you're due, you're due for your, your boob and lube. <laughs> yeah. But when, but when I went into her, she, and I'm sitting on naked on her table and she came in and she said, actually recently the guidelines have changed to three years. So I don't need to do it. But the guidelines are always fucking changing. Do you ever notice? I that? know. Always. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's really funny how when insurance, okay, so maybe I'm being a little like um, conspiracy theory here, but I've just no- noticed a correlation. Correlation does not equal causation, but still I've noticed a correlation between insurance companies bitching about the cost of things and then the um, American Medical Association's recommendation, recommendations changing <laughs> to, right, right. to sort of adapt to, you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, okay, so lobbyists don't want you to look at my cervix. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's like as long as the I mean, like, good, good thing the insurance companies, like profits are okay, but like the patients are getting fucked, you know, like. Right. Crazy. Well, you know what? Though she still she still listened to me, and um, so I go in for this CT scan of my lower pelvis. Incidentally, my um, coils are exactly where they're supposed to be. And the technician just put me in the. Have you had a CT scan? Uh, a CAT scan. Yeah. Yeah, I have. It's like a big donut. Okay, yeah. So they put he put me in like the big circular sort of Tron donut, uh-huh. just a tiny bit too far, and they caught a glimpse of my lung. So I get a call from my gynecologist the next morning. She said, okay, so we got the results, and your coils are fine. You have a little bit of gallstones. She said, I said, oh, good. She said, no, no, we're not even going to talk about that. I was like, what are you talking about? She said, well, because what's more important and the thing that we need to address immediately is they – also found uh, a small tumor on your lung and we need to have that looked at. Okay. And it was like, so, okay. So what goes through your mind? Like you're on the phone when this happens? I was at work on the phone Yeah, and I work, (laughs) I work for, you know, Phil Knight, um, the guy who owns Nike. Yeah, sure. Okay. So he just, I don't don't know him. I know who he is. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So I work for the Knight Cancer Institute. Uh Uh-huh. Ironically, um, you know, because I just told that I, I had a tumor. I don't know. I just found it ironic. And um, so I'm at work at the Knight Cancer Institute on the 14th floor with my head against a window, like looking down as she's talking to me. And I just remember like seeing all the people walking down below. And when she said there was a tumor, it just there was this moment where everything sort of condensed and came, became like a pinhole. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you yeah. had a moment like this? Well, not, just, not quite. <laughs> it was almost like the sides of my head were squishing in and everything became really long. I don't know. I got, it was like a weird body thing. Was it, and then pa- it, was it panic? Were you panicking? Mm-mm. No. No. Uh-uh. It was almost like looking through the wrong end of a telescope. I don't know. It was really weird. Were you scared? I think that is probably the physical manifestation of fear yeah, <laughs> or in shock, you know, and, right. and, and, and a little bit of like, like what language are you speaking to me right now? 
Yeah. Like what? What are these words you're saying? That just doesn't make any sense to me. So who do you? Did you what did you? Do? Once you hang up, like obviously you make plans or whatever with this doctor, but then like you're at work, you hang up, you have to go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where you're like sending a fax or what? What are you doing? Like how does that? How does that play out? I took my cell phone into the copy room. Um, and it's the only like room where there's any privacy. And I called my boyfriend and I said, um, I just said, they, they found something on my lung, you know, and his mom died of cancer of everything. Oh, so I know, I know, but you know, you call the people closest to you. Right. right. And then weirdly I called my ex-husband. You did. I did, yeah, and I wouldn't say he and I are especially close friends, but we, we, you know, the only thing we have in common is that we adore our uh, our sons, you know, well, our twelve-year-old sure, yeah. twin twin boys. And so, the first thing I thought of was I need to talk to Mike because Mike is my boyfriend is a statistician. He's actually a biostatistics professor at a medical school, uh-huh. and so he does a lot of studies with cancer. And the first thing I needed was a friendly ear. But then also some reassurance. And I asked him, it's great. I love him. I asked him all of these statistics questions. <laughs> like, what are the chances yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> so I gotta, okay. Yeah. Because I would have been doing the same thing. And like before we proceed, um, yeah. I kind of want to interject because you have had, um, in a lot of respects, or at least by my standards, like a crazy life. And we should tell people, like we've known each other, or at least, you know, we, we've known each other virtually and then have met uh, in person. Uh, via the nervous breakdown, you were a contributor, you know, we've just known each other, it seems like, uh, via the computer for a long time. Yeah. And yeah, so about, I, about eight years, I think, maybe seven years, maybe. Yeah. And so I, I've learned over the years about you by reading you and by talking to you and like, uh, you, you know, you had uh, a diff, was it, is a difficult childhood? Is that acceptable or am I overstating it? <laughs> No, no, I think that's it's so funny you should say that because you said describe my environment, where am I right now? And and I said I'm sitting on my bed in my robe right now, but I'm actually doing a timeline because um you know the moth? Yeah. Right? Yeah, so, like the moth so there's, mm-hmm, there's a local storytelling series that's very similar to the moth, um, or snap judgment, that kind of thing. It's called um Back Fence PDX. And I'm going to be doing it on February 1st. Oh, cool. And so I'm going to be telling an 11-minute story. And I am doing a timeline right now of um, this, like, random. I've never written about this. It's a story so fucked up, Brad, that I've never written about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's saying something. (laughs) And so uh, in the summer of 1986, my uncle kidnapped, raped, and murdered my schoolmate, um, I was 10, she was 10, and he buried her on my grandparents' ranch, and, like, my grandpa found her because he he thought that it was a a calf that had gone missing, and he saw all these buzzards circling, and so he actually found the body of this 10-year-old girl, and, like, she had a, like, her arm was sticking out, and he had, like, not been able to bury her all the way, and so he lit her, you know, exposed body parts on fire, and so... Yeah, so my story at Backfence PDX is going to be about um, about the experience of being a nine, ten, eleven year old girl and living in this tiny little town and in New Mexico, in New happen. Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. is this Roswell? No, it's a town outside of Roswell called Artesia. 
Okay. That's where the real aliens go. <laughs> Roswell's for the right. tourists. Um, well, you know, there's still a lot of domestic oil drilling down in that area. And so Artesia is an oil refinery town. And so everybody used to call it Artesia because it smells a lot like sulfur. <laughs> Fun place yeah. for children to play. Um, right. So, okay. So th- I did not know that. That's, that is fucked up, man. Your uncle murdered one of your classmates. Raped. Raped and Kidnapped, murdered. raped, murdered. What's, mm-hmm. What was up with this guy? Like, was he just, was he mentally ill? And was, the, I mean, do people see this? Well, that or? was his that was his claim. Um, I'm just getting my timeline down because, you know, as um, as you know, I'm writing a memoir or ostensibly writing a memoir. And part of the real challenge of really writing it is that there's so many players. There's so, the, the timeline is so convoluted. I, I mean, I can't even in this conversation with you tell you a linear story. I know. Right? Well, I mean, there's, I mean so, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean... Like for when somebody has like a really big bad thing happen and you get to know them, like they usually throw that card down like at some point. Do you know what I'm saying? And the fact that like this was like still in your hand, <laughs> right? <laughs> like uh, you know, and I don't mean to laugh because it's such a horrible thing, but I mean, my God, you've had some things happen. You know, holy shit. Right, right. Well, I mean, I was born a poor black man. I'm sorry, that's always my joke. <laughs> That's my favorite joke. Uh, <laughs> I was born, you know, to my mom was 17 when she had my sister and 19 when she had me. Um, I was born in Roswell, New Mexico. We moved immediately to Barstow, California. Very poor. My mom, um, you know, it was a, it was like a Hell's Angels biker kind of, because when I say I was raised by bikers, you know, I it's like there's so many like middle class people with Harleys that I'm like, no, not that. <laughs> Think easy rider. Right. Think communes and like, you know, I was raised with people with names like dirtbag and douchebag <laughs> and perky, right? And like everybody's wife was their old lady. Yeah. And like, like the real and- like the real Hells Angels. Like these were the guys who were going for it. And like they had some sort of like um like dogma like they were living on communal property or there what yeah yeah and you know de- you know down with the man lots of drug use lots of alcoholism lots of um, lots of abuse and violence I lots of abuse yeah lots of inter- interpersonal abuse right and so i mean i was really really fucked with as a kid but how so but, like, did anybody ever physically abuse you sure in all the ways oh big God. and small oh my Right. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories 
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Right. So, so how did you emerge so sweet? What the hell happened? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I mean, I know we all have our dark sides, but like you, you know, a lot of times people who have that stuff happen to them as young people don't come out with their heads screwed on, you know? I mean, I don't know if I, I mean, I'm not trying know, to, not I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to make you into mother Teresa. I'm just saying, like, no, no, <laughs> it's not a linear story and it wasn't a linear path. Right. And, you know, I still, you know, I still have a hard time from time to time. And, you know, right. um, I'm head injured because of the car accident that I was in. So, okay. so I was in a car accident. <laughs> yeah. So what, like, let's get, back. <laughs> Holy shit. so your childhood, it's the hell's angels. It's, it's difficult. It's crazy. Um, it's abusive. And then you make your way through school and then, well, and that's it. So there's your answer. I was smart. And I'm not bragging. I mean, uh, uh, no, and I'm not bragging. And actually, I was thinking about this very thing, coming back to the tumor thing. I was thinking about this this very thing. Um, my, my friend Amanda said, you know, you're doing so great. I can't believe how well you're healing. And I was like, you know what? That's actually not me. Like, I'm not laying claim to that. Um, I was given really shitty like a, a really shitty start right and I was given poverty I was giving given a, a long history of interpersonal abuse and I was given you know just all of this shit but I was also given really great hair and straight teeth <laughs> I hadn't seen it no these things actually become important right like yeah. it's really amazing how important straight white teeth are I'm not fucking with you. Like it gets, you know, like you, no snackle tooth, and I, which is great because I didn't see a dentist until I was 21 years old. Oh yeah. But and I've never had dent, you know, braces in my, and I have great straight teeth, you know. So I was giving these like little tiny things, but I was also given smarts, and you know, a body that is more resilient than I have any. Thing to do with like there's no excuse for my body to be so resilient except for that it just is right. and I you know I, I told her that I feel like that like 1976 you know orange Datsun station wagon that you see driving around that has like 500,000 miles on the engine yeah it just goes it just for some reason it just keeps working yeah yeah that's I mean that's what I feel like and so part of that whole package and really I feel like this is outside of like what I experience as me. I mean it's just a part of like the meat machine I was given to drive around during this time that I have on this planet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Was this was this smarts. And um and because of that I was always put in classes with the smarter kids, which for a whole slew of reasons that are really complicated and multifaceted tend to be the more middle class students. Right. Right. Sure. So I was always um, sort of one class up from where I was raised. And I mean, classes societally and sort of educationally. And, you know, and I always had a teacher who just really was kind to me. And so school was my safe place. Right. And I got a lot of really positive reinforcement and feedback at school. I mean, I, I hated my peers. I got in a lot of fist fights. <laughs> I, was, I fucked a lot of people's boyfriends. I mean, I was not, 
<laughs> I was not, uh, I did not have an easy time socially, but academically, it kind of saved my life. Well, you, and you could not, I mean, were you intimidated by peers after going, I mean, like when you face down a hell's angel at like the age of eight, like how do you, tr- how does that translate when you're at school and someone's picking on you? Uh, well, I want to be clear. I don't know who listens to the podcast, but I wasn't raised with Hell's Angels. Okay. I think I have. <laughs> a, by are... the way, I think I have a huge Hell's Angels audience. Just I'm guessing. <laughs> You'll find out. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Sparky and uh, uh, Sparky and Dirtbag are gonna show up, and and Turkey, and you're right. <laughs> uh, no, I, it it uh, it was its own special sort of Southern New Mexico sort of thing, but you know, there's a big mo- motorcycle community down there. Still, and I also want to say, in fairness, a lot of decent people, but it's a mixed bag. And I mean, in the night, in the late seventies, early eighties, it was a major mixed bag. You know? Sure, of course, yeah. A mixed bag of dirt weed. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's some bad seeds. <laughs> it just pops when you smoke it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, you know, DHS was called a lot. I was, you know, spanked sort of unfairly for reasonable child things. And, you know, I'd go to school with with belt marks oh. from the backs of my knees up to the middle of my back. And From your mom? No, from my stepdad. Okay. What was your mom, and, and was your mom, what was your mom doing when this was happening? You know, oh. Oh, Brad. (laughs) (laughs) My mom is a very decent human being, um, but she, look, you know, I'm just going to assume none of my family will ever listen to this. I don't really give a fuck if they do, because you know what? I'm tired of like shit that gets never talked about. But the, the, the short story that I didn't. I mean, really, like the heart of it that I didn't find out until I had my own kids and I was a, a grown married woman. The whole source of it is my grandma um, had her first baby when she was 13. She had nine children by the time she was 27. Holy the first, shit. the first baby died, so oh. eight lived. Oh my god! So she had six, and then got a divorce because her husband left her, and then married. Uh, another man a few years later, you know, she had six kids. She was 22 years old. She lived in a storm cellar with the six kids and worked two jobs. You know, it was this kind of thing. And um, at, at a certain point, she married a man. He was a state trooper. Um, it was her second marriage. She had two more babies with him. He was incredibly abusive. And my mom lost her virginity when she was eight years old to him. Holy shit. And he used to. I feel like I just keep off. saying that. By the way, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, like... that's what I'm going to call my book. Is holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> holy <laughs> shit by Gloria Harrison. <laughs> oh my god! Just so. <laughs> and awful. and he used to, you know, make her do things while he jacked. I mean, it's just it's just a, it's a fucked up story. So you know, this my mom. God bless her doesn't really have, like, I just outed my mom. Sorry, mom, because I'm totally going to tell her I did it. Um, she's been talking for years about how she's tired of not talking about it. So, 
Um, she, so she had, and I didn't know it. I didn't understand it, but she had her own thing going on, right? Like she was in reform school at 12 years old and just, you know, had a hard life. Lots and lots and lots of bad experiences that, that eclipse my own, right? right? Which is hard to do. And, and but, but, but she was funny. My mom was so funny and my mom taught me funny and my mom taught me a lot of really useful skills that I, you know, only just now truly value for what they were. She taught me endurance. She taught me tolerance. You know, she taught me to laugh. She taught me a shitload about music. She was the first person to introduce me to Metallica. (laughs) How many people can say that about their mom, right? And to you too, and to Cat Stevens, you know, I mean, so this is sort of the good and the bad of being raised by a very young parent, right? Yeah. Is you get these, you get this mixed bag. So, um, so yeah, but, but, uh, you know, she and my stepdad divorced whenever I was 15. So I live, I was living in a funeral home. My stepdad was a mortician in Oklahoma. <laughs> okay. Well, at, least, at, least, at, least, at least there was a professional like reason for why you were living in a funeral home. It wasn't just like you were squatting in a... <laughs> <laughs> no. No, he was a mortician for a spell. He's, he's a, been, been many things. And incidentally, I should interject here that he and I actually miraculously have developed a, a perfectly lovely uh, relationship as adults in the last couple of years. Your abusive, ste- many, your, your abusive stepdad. He is no longer abusive. He is, he, he, you know, he was 19 when my mom met him. Yeah. He was 30 when they divorced. It's a, you know, we've all come a long way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were all children, you know, Sure. and, um, and, but, but, it, you know, my experience as a child was not the experience that I'm having now. So, um, he, you know, we lived in a funeral home in Oklahoma and, and things were as bad as they ever were between him and my mom. And, and it was just bad. And so they got a divorce or they separated in 1991 when I was 15 and we went to Roswell, New Mexico, where my mom was from. And I just lost her. I mean, she just, she just took off. How old was she at that? She was 34. She was 34 with a 15 year old and a 16 year old and her second divorce and years and years and years, almost her entire life of abuse and poverty. And she just lost herself for about 12 years in drugs and alcohol and men. I mean, just really, she went all in. She said, fuck it. She just, she just, you know, I was 15, Kim was 16. We were assholes to her. Rumor has it that's just kind of how 16 and 15 year olds are, especially when you blame your mom for making you stick around in a situation that you hated so bad. Right. Um, and she just wasn't having it. And so she just abandoned us. And my sister did what she did. And I did what I did. And what I did was get pregnant. Okay. So wait. At 15. when you say your mom abandoned you, like meaning you're like in a, some sort of home. No, I mean, we moved in with her sister. Uh-huh. And then she just quit coming home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she, she just stopped being there. <laughs> like, I remember one night, my sister, she was dating this guy named Gary Reardon. 
and my sister and I called him Gary Weird One. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just this like freaky guy. And you know, this was only a few months. Let's see, we moved there in October. I got pregnant with Sierra in January. So yeah, I mean, this was like winter in New Mexico, which in the desert can get pretty cold, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. And uh, we're wandering around in the middle of the night because my aunt Kathy was like not having it. She's like, "You need to go find your fucking mom. You guys are eating me on a house and home." And I'm like, "I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing." And you're, so, pre- and and you're my, pregnant. I want to. Yeah, this this is this was my master plan to get pregnant. I was brilliant. (laughs) So we're wandering around the streets of Roswell, which, you know, it's like maybe 50,000 people. We kind of knew where Gary Weird One lived. And so we found my mom's car and we like knocked on a couple doors and we're just like, we're like, Carrie comes to the door in like jeans and no t-shirt. And my mom's behind him and I can hear this meek little voice like, Gary, let me talk to her. And Kim and I are like, we're hungry. And, mom's like, Gary, come on, let me talk to the girls. And he looks over his shoulder. He looks at me and then he looks over his shoulder and says to my mom, come on, Risa, you have to learn how to cut the fucking apron string sometime. And then he shut the door. And you remember what you remember the line. Oh yeah. Cause I was like, what does cut the apron strings mean? Like I didn't, I didn't understand the phrase. Right. (laughs) I had to go research the phrase. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's how I handled things. I learned about it. <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and that was kind of the last moment that she was my mom because she hadn't really lost herself in alcohol yet, but she was on her way. So I got pregnant. Kim moved back by, to Oklahoma. By, by a high school boyfriend? Um, no, no, it was this guy that I dated for a few weeks. Okay. Older, <laughs> an, an older man? No. Okay. He was he was my aunt. Although I did have an affair with this twenty eight year old guy that had no business fucking a fifteen year old. So wait, you, you got a, you got pregnant by a fifteen year old? Uh he was sixteen. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um so then now you're pregnant and you and your sister are living with your aunt. And then how do Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, sort of sort of couch surfing a little bit. I mean, I lived in a lot of places when I was pregnant. One of the places, I mean, my sister took off. She eventually ended up back in Oklahoma. She dropped out of school. My mom kept telling me to drop out of school. The only reason I graduated high school was out of spite. Like, that's how I rebelled. (laughs) You're like, I'm going to get that diploma. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Drop out, huh? (laughs) Uh, No, part uh, during part of my pregnancy, uh, there was this man who, my mom had this friend, Carol, who was her sort of adolescent friend. And she reunited with her when we moved back to Roswell. And um, Carol, in the intervening years, had married a man named Dean. And Dean was very, very, very abusive and horrible to Carol. And then got drunk one night and got in a car accident and became a quadriplegic. And was in, confined to a hospital bed. And fed through a tube in his pancreas every few, uh, three times a day. Um, and in exchange for my room and board, I fed him through his tube and changed his catheter bag. And but did not his catheter. You weren't intubating this man's penis. No. <laughs> okay, good. I was just changing the bag <laughs> right. and, um, you know, cleaning up like... Because we had to give him medicine, and he, you know, 
like had to clean up the and it was like his eyes were so alive and I had this weird relationship with him and I just remember I used to like just talk to him and feel really uncomfortable because I knew that he was like a bad guy like before his accident right because I mean things were so black and white at that age like you were good or you were bad right and I knew that he had been a bad guy and you know meanwhile like Carol is fucking my high school friends in the room next door really loudly just to get back at him. Wait. Oh my God. So Carol's your mom's friend. Uh huh. And she's fucking one of your high school friends. Uh huh. Oh my God. Just as like, a, as like a revenge thing. Uh huh. How old? So she was yeah. like, what in her thirties. Oh yeah. Good Lord. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is crazy. Gloria. This is like, in, you know, this if like anyone, four months. <laughs> I know, but if anyone should write a memoir, really, I mean, this is, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you are the person for whom the genre was invented. I just <laughs> to get that out there. <laughs> so just saying, yeah. So like when you're with this guy, all right, this is a, this is an interesting question because I'm sort of now going back to Metallica and the song one and that video where the guy Which was the very first song that my mom introduced me to. Okay. Wow, that's so interesting. Because yeah. like that, that song yeah. really had an effect on me. I was never like a huge metalhead, but I remember the video for yeah. one where the guy has no arms and no legs. It's some movie, and I'm, I should know the movie, but it's Johnny uh, got his gun. That's right, Johnny got his gun. So uh, he's got no arms and no legs, and he's mute, right? And he's just like this, right? And he's just lying there, and, and he can only communicate in Morse code. Yeah, and so by moving his head, and he's able to say "kill me" over and over in Morse code. Okay. By moving his head okay. rhythmically. Right. Okay. So this, uh, what was this guy's name? Dean. Dean. Okay. So Dean is now quadriplegic. Um, what does he have movement? Can he move anything? His eyes. His eye. That's it. That's it. Okay. And he was a bad guy before this accident. And then he has this like horrific accident. He is rendered a vegetable essentially, or I guess like a yeah. phys- physically like immobile. When you looked at his eyes, um, you said you were kind of freaked out did you see like evil in his eyes or was he like trying to say like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I want him to be like, I want him to have had some. No, sort of, no. none of that. None of that. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like life is ever really that clean. Right. I guess like, so. Yeah. I want it to be, I, but it's not. Yeah. No, it was more like, like scared animal. Ugh. Right. What like a, what a fate for a guy who was like yeah. a, a real abusive asshole, you know, like, holy cow. Yeah, that'll show him. Yeah, right. um, I mean, not that, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that there's some sort of like, I mean, I guess like you could say there's karmic retribution, but nobody deserves that. I I mean, I don't know. I mean, right, right. I mean, what do you know, what do you say? Ugh. What do you do? So, okay, so you're taking care of this guy. You're, uh, Carol is banging one of your friends <laughs> in the next room. You're pregnant. Loudly. It wasn't just that. It was just like loud. It was just like. It was like revenge fucking. It was, was, it, was so it, uncomfortable. I, okay, but was it authentic or was it like theatrical? Like, was it theatrically loud uh, for effect? Oh, Brad, I feel like my whole entire first 21 years was theatrics. It, it just, I can't tease it apart. Okay. Yeah, you're like, who knows if it was real or not? I mean, I guess that, right, does, right. I guess that doesn't really matter. But I can like, you know, in a, in a movie, in a film comedy, it would be like theatrical, like, uh, you know. I'm not going to do like the Meg Ryan orgasm <laughs> on this show, but it, right? It no, it wasn't like that. But it was like a lot of like banging on walls. 
Okay. Right? Yeah. And like, like, can you, ah! can like you, that kind of thing. Can you imagine how fucking scared that 15 year old kid was? He must have. I mean, unless like this guy was like, you know, a, a league beyond where I no, was. No, and well, and my kid, I mean, the, the kid was, he was, you know, and maybe he was 16 or 17. He was like this scrawny guy, and Carol was like maybe 300 pounds. Oh, God. And so, oh, God. The whole, I mean, the whole thing gets more and more comical. Oh, my God. God. Yeah, so that's where, and then that didn't work for me anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I got, I got on welfare. I had to be a certain number of months along before I could get the cash assistance. And I, um, and school started, so I enrolled into my junior year of high school, and I was, what was it, like eight months pregnant, and I got tan. I mean, I got the state assistance finally, and I got this little tiny um, studio apartment across from my mom's apartment. And she was at this point living with her boyfriend, Mike, who I liked a lot. He was not Gary Weird one. He's a different guy. Yeah. But they were drunk from sunup to sundown because uh, my mom got unemployment from Oklahoma for the first year. She was in New Mexico and didn't really find a job. So she was just drunk a lot. And so, you know, she had, I had wanted to put my daughter up for adoption and she had said, please don't, um, I'll help you take care of her. And I said, okay. And, you know, not so unconsciously, but kind of unconsciously. I was like, good. My mom's back. Right. And she wasn't. So I'm living in this little tiny, teeny shithole studio apartment. I'm going to this alternative school where they have a daycare, and I'm driving, you know, this piece of shit car and I'm just like, I'm just like, I'm going to do this. I'm trying to do this, you know. And, um, my daughter was born, uh, in September of 1992 and it was like three months of just hell. She had colic. I couldn't breastfeed. My nipples cracked and bled. Um, I remember this one night it was, uh, I don't know. I hadn't been getting good sleep. I'd been trying to go to school. My mom wasn't really helping with Sierra. You know, I would say, you know, mom, can you just take Sierra for a little bit? And then after about 30 minutes, her drunk voice would holler across the hallway. Why don't you come get your fucking kid? Oh, and I'm just God. like, oh, God. Right. So then, so one night in this three-month period, um, trying to go to school, all this, her umbilical cord had fallen off. And I don't know why. I mean, at this point, I'm 16, right? I was all of 16, no, no longer 15. Um, uh, and I kept it. I don't know why I kept her falling off umbilical cord. I guess it was like the same way my mom used to keep my teeth. Like I didn't, I didn't know. I was just going with it, right? So I kept it in this little tin next to my bed. And one night few days later I woke up and I just heard this like like this like can you hear this like this tapping like this teeny tiny like fingernail tapping and I was like what the fuck is that so I turn on the light and there are like a dozen cockroaches eating her umbilical cord oh my and when God. the and when the light, and when the light came on they just like scattered oh, everywhere oh my god I'm, I'm covering was, my face with my hands oh my god yeah it was the single most horrifying thing. 
That is horrible. That happened probably in that whole period. And it's, there were a lot of horrifying things. It, sa- it so. sounded strangely sweet as you were telling the beginning of it. I was like, well, maybe she's gonna, <laughs> is she going to plant this in the backyard and like grow like a cherry tree or something? <laughs> no. no. It was food. <laughs> no, that's the, I mean, you know, everything in this book is going you know, to be like horrible, right? And But that's the first 21 years of my life. The last 16 years have been pretty okay. <laughs> okay. So, like, but let's get to, like, the car accident. Like, how did you had the baby, Sierra, and then what happened? And so, so it was this really bad situation, and I couldn't handle it. My mom was drunk all the time. And I, uh, on a whim, one day, released her for adoption to some family members. That's really the whole story. I went to an aunt and I was like, I don't think I can do this. And she said, do you want me to call your uncle and see if he and his new wife want her? And I said, sure. And the next morning they picked her up. Wow. And that that was it. And you know I what? Mean, that, I mean, like, I don't mean you can speak to this, obviously, with a uh, much greater authority than I. But like you, you were 16 years old. You didn't have resources around you. Um, there is wisdom in that decision, I would feel, at least uh, you know, for Sierra, right? You know, maybe except for except for my aunt also could have said anything like, um, what do you need? Uh, let's troubleshoot. Um, the hell you will. You know, any, I mean, like, uh, you know, so retroactively, it doesn't really feel like my decision any more than anything else ever did. Right. You know, it, it is and it isn't. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. was it good for Sierra? No, I ended up taking her back when she was five and a half because she was being abused. But that's oh. for later uh, along in the timeline. Um, so I put her up for adoption. I transferred back to the not to the school that wasn't um, an alternative school. I was at this point an emancipated minor. Like no one had my back. I could come and go as I pleased. I didn't have to go to school. There were no truant officers. I could do whatever I wanted. Um, so I, I stayed with some family for a couple of months, and that went poorly because, you know, I don't really have – it's just it wasn't, it wasn't good. I mean, thanks to any of my family that ever tried to help me, but it just wasn't a good fit. And um, um, I have this friend named Ben who – uh, was very solidly middle class. You know, his family had just moved to Roswell from Napa, California, and they sold their teeny tiny little, you know, shoebox house and um, bought a sprawling ranch in Roswell. And um, they invited me to live with them. And uh, in my story that was on This American Life, I refer to them as my foster family which is accurate in that they were fostering me, but I was never a part of the state foster system because I was an emancipated minor. Uh-huh. Um, so that's like a sticking point. But well, it's, te- they it's, a let me... it's a technicality. They took you in. Yeah. Yeah. They took me in. They did. And um, in March, so let's see, Sierra was born in September of 1992. I released her for adoption like Three days after Christmas in 1992, I moved in with them in March, so I couch surfed for like three months. And then um, I lived with them for three months. And in June of 1993, they went out of back to Napa to visit family. 
and insisted that I went with them, even though I didn't want to, because I was like, I'm going to be the odd wheel, you know, the third wheel. I'm going to be like, nobody knows me. I'd rather stay here with my boyfriend. But they were very devout Christian. And the dad was very like, I don't want you staying here fornicating with your boyfriend. So <laughs> you got to come with me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So, yeah, I went with them and we spent two weeks in Napa and San Francisco. And then um, uh, while I was pregnant with Sierra, I had found out that my birth certificate father was not my biological father. My mom had had an affair with his brother, which makes my sister my cousin. Wrap your mind around that for a second. Um, so my mom, my mom had had an affair with his brother, uh, which explains my red hair, and it explains a lot of things, right? So she told me this while I was pregnant with Sierra. So I had located him in a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center in Barstow. And I called him when I was pregnant, and I said, hey, you know, you're my dad. And he was really sweet. He said, well, God, I'm... Glad I'm already being treated for drug and alcohol use, I think was his his response. I mean, he tried to make a joke out of it. Um, so this was, you know, maybe a year later, um, I convinced my foster family to deviate from their path down the I-5 from Napa, you know, and then, oh, you know, east through Arizona over to New Mexico, which was going to be their plan, and just deviate just a hair to go to Barstow so that I can meet him. And um, so they drove me, you know, three hours out of their way to Barstow. And I stopped at a payphone and called him and called him and called him and called him. And he never answered. Turns out he had been put in jail the night before for public intoxication. Oh, God. Um, so we got some pop at the convenience store we were at turned around, headed back to the I-5, and on our way there, um, about 40 miles outside of just north of Barstow, uh, a man and his passenger, who had been drinking all afternoon, uh, uh, were heading back, and he collided with his head on, and he had a .28 blood alcohol level, and he, uh, my foster mom died instantly. And I was behind her, and I had to be taken out with the jaws of life. And um, I and the three other kids in the car, I mean, all teenagers, were airlifted to various hospitals, either Palm Springs or Loma Linda. Um, And then her husband, my foster dad, was unharmed because he was sort of like the, what is it, like the fulcrum? of the impact he had a little like a cracked collarbone but the car turned at like 180 degrees and it sort of pivoted on him does that make any sense kind of yeah so he he was kind of unscathed um and you know i don't really feel bad for the guy he married his mistress like two months after his wife died fuck him jesus (laughs) the christian guy i know Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. the one that wrote Gloria's blood money on my check he had to give me because he stole money from me oh. from the insurance company. Um, there's just yeah. there's just not like a I mean it, it just seems there's like no it, stopping point, Brad. Yeah. there's no stopping point. Yeah, there's no like ray of light. <laughs> there's no like I want like uh, is Hal Hartley is he the actor? I want like like an avuncular Hal, not Hal Hartley. He's the director. Um, Hal Holbrook. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah, he, he, he directed Harry Held and Mud. Yeah, but I want Hal Holbrook, the guy who, you know, he was in um, Into the Wild. He played like the kindly uncle. I want somebody to just come into your life. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they did. So they did. Oh, yeah, Hal Holbrook. Yeah. So, okay, uh, so so you're airlifted. Jaws of, the Jaws of Life take you. You obviously have no recollection of any of this. No, huh? So you went as soon as like, so what, like the, the, did you see the car coming or did, did, were you not looking? Oh, I have no idea. You have no idea. No, the last thing I remember is getting pop at the convenience store in Barstow. And the next thing I remember is waking up in a dimly lit room um, with tubes in my nose, down my throat, in my chest, in my urethra, in my... I mean, I had tubes and hoses everywhere and I couldn't talk. And I just, I woke up and instantly started spelling Lisa, which was my foster mom's name, in sign language over and over again. Just L-I-S-A-L-I-S-A. Did you know sign language? Yeah, I only knew the alphabet. Okay. Well, at least you, at least you had, like, this wasn't like something that just like spontaneously happened after the accident. No, my first memory though is seeing my hand move. And making the word connection with what my fingers were doing. And then having... It's like Helen Keller. Uh, I don't know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go on to be a senator. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> you, never, hey, you never know. Any, the story this crazy, like anything could happen, right? Yeah, I did. I did meth for six months. It's written. It's in the public record. <laughs> I won't ever be a senator. <laughs> hey, plenty of senators are on meth these days, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah okay so you're what happened like what were your physical injuries ah geez um well they took my spleen which i guess is standard operating procedure i don't know why for what for um, like a massive like physical like impact trauma for trauma yeah 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 i had a closed head injury um but I was in a coma, Glasgow Coma Scale 3. And I forget exactly what that means. I think it means that can, like, open eyes but isn't responsive. It's like this whole, like, there's a whole scale of uh, different types of coma symptoms. And how long were you in a coma? So, like, how long were you out for? Uh, it, they induced me into a coma okay. after I got to the hospital. But, I mean... My estimation, because I recently, in the last couple of months, got in contact with one guy who was in the accident with me, and he had been awake the whole time, and he was like this guy I met in Napa. It was their nephew. They were bringing him back to Roswell for a fun, like, you know, random summer jaunt, and um, so I didn't know him that well. I don't, you know, I'd only known him for a couple of weeks. His name is Jeremy. And we recently reconnected. And he told me that he had been awake the whole, oh, my God. I could go on a whole tangent about this because it's fascinating. But he said that um, it was like an hour and a half. He said it really felt like it was at least that long. And he broke his back. So he he wasn't paralyzed. But he just, he lay there listening to me moan he said i moaned uh, like the on and off the whole time and that it smelled like blood in the car and that he couldn't reach me and that you know like yeah yeah no did you ever get to see the car i mean did you ever see what the aftermath oh yeah you did yeah 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 in pictures 
just total. I mean, it was like a it was like a tin can. Oh. I mean, because they had to rip it open. It was oh, yeah. like folded open in all these places. Oh man. Okay, so uh, your injuries again. You had your spleen removed. You had an internal head injury or a closed. Head I had injury. a closed head injury. Which, um, you know, has had the greatest long-lasting effects because it affects mood and memory and emotional regulation and all of these, like, things that you wouldn't expect. Um, I mean, maybe memory, but it, it affects a whole range of, like, emotional stuff that that I didn't even know. But um, my leg was crushed. I still can't run to this day. You can't physically um, run if someone's chasing you? You can't run? I look like one of the zombie extras from the thriller video. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, I can run, yeah. but I'm not adept at it. Yeah, okay. Um, and and it hurts. But yes, I technically can. Um, so, um, that was. Oh, I had a collapsed lung. Collapsed lung. Okay, yeah. They had to give me six bags of blood on the helicopter. And my heart stopped on the helicopter, so I was technically dead for a minute. For a full minute? Um, yeah, well, for, like, long enough for them to paddle me back, you know, without the intervention of human beings, I would have, you know, died. And so, but you were you were technically dead for a, a, a portion of time? For a moment or two. Okay. And you have, I mean, yeah. I, so, yeah. There, and there's nothing, like, there are no angels or nothing? No. Okay. No, 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 no. My experience of death was just black. Uh-huh. Okay. So, which, yeah. which what? Which, that's good. <laughs> right, right. Less complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have plenty to sort through. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you survived, obviously. Like, what? Yeah. you know, I feel like we could, I mean, this could be like a uh, two-hour episode, but like, long story short, um, you recovered from that accident uh and fully fully yeah yeah it's been 20 years uh just just 20 just over 20 years uh-huh. um and yeah i'd say that you know i'm doing i'm doing okay and you I'm have you have twin boys you have uh, your daughter and um then you found out that you have this thing on your lung to circle back Okay, so, but I also have my twin sons, my daughter, and three grandsons. There's been a new one since you and I last talked. No kidding. Wait, your, wait, your daughter had, I think, I thought your daughter had one child. Did she have? Last time we talked, she did. She's had one a year. So. Holy shit. We, we haven't really caught up in a while, Brad. So you're there was th- this American Life thing a few months ago, <laughs> but we didn't really have a chance. So 30, 37 <laughs> years old and three grandkids. Three grandsons, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Women in your family, and women in your my, family, my, my grandson's, young. my grandson's great, great grandma. So my grandma is 74. <laughs> I was going to, I was just saying like the women in your family, they just, they have babies young. They just do. They do. I think we have babies at each other. I really do. <laughs> like, I really do. I, I mean, like I, it dawned on me recently that we're just like fucking at each other. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, watch this. <laughs> and it's it's sick. I really think that um, fertility should be opt in <laughs> instead of opt out, right. <laughs> and that there should be no blood involved. Those are my two requests. That seems can reason- we just modify that? Seems that? reasonable to me. Somehow medicine can figure that out. Um, right. 
but you know, you have a full life. You uh, are remarkably sane considering all that you've been through. And then um, just as like a capper, uh, you know, what about a month ago, uh, you know, on sort of like a, a, a random, it's sort of randomly, they catch this uh, tumor on your lung. Right. And you're, you know, the, we, you had the tunnel vision, you know, experience or whatever in your office. And uh, what happens, you know, in the aftermath? Obviously, you know, you called your ex and you called your boyfriend and you started running the statistics. But like, what was the, you know, what is, what is the last month entailed? Um. You know, it's it's really interesting um, because it's been kind of awesome. <laughs> 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 I'm writing um, I'm writing an essay about my experience of it, and you know, my my twin sons have um, some behavioral shit that they're they're dealing with that they've been dealing with for a long time. I tease and. I call one of them Sylvia Plath and I call the other one the Artful Dodger. Because <laughs> <laughs> Sylvia is a, a, I don't call this to its face, but he's so emotional. And the other one is just like this, like, scrappy, like, precocious. It's like if Dennis the Menace and Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes melded into one child, it would be the other twin. The Dodger. And... The do- the art for Dodger, right? Sylvia Plath is like one guitar and the entire Smith's discography away from um, being in a band. <laughs> He's headed that way. <laughs> you can feel it. Yeah, and so they're lovely, but they are a challenge, you know. And and I just um, so I'm writing this essay, and I was like, you know, I we just really got caught up in this like. Like, I, I quit processing with them at a certain point. And it was just like, you fucking stop. And they're like, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. so this was like how we were communicating for the last probably six months before all of this, right? And people, you know, the advice I was getting was you need to remove stress from your life. You need to slow down. You need to breathe. You need to, you know, like all these things, right? And so um, this this essay or book chapter or whatever you want to call it is, is whatever it's going to end up being. I'm, I called it when you hand the universe a, a bullhorn because I'm not especially, I'm not religious at all, but I'm like, okay, I think somebody's trying to give me a message here because <laughs> um, I have this By way tumor. of what? By way of the tumor? Uh, yeah, just because I had this tumor removed. Well, and I was right? gonna, I was going to say too though, the, like the panic attacks. I mean, obviously there's this the pain. You know, you're going to get some sort of yeah. weird bodily sensation. But then, you know, the corresponding panic attacks seem to me to be the product. And maybe I'm reaching here, but they seem to me to be the product of like um, a deeper, you know, bodily intelligence at like the cellular level, or you know, somehow your system is like sounding an alarm. It, it, it is actually, and that's what panic attacks are. It's 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 a faulty flight or fight response. Your body thinks that you're actually in a, a situation where you are in danger and it is doing exactly what it's supposed to do in that situation, except for it's mis- it's not calling it right. By the way, I think there's, so, there's probably a certain percentage of listeners who are hearing all of this, all of these stories for the first time who are uh, currently having their very first panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend uh, benzodiazepines. Okay, good. We can diagnose um, that. Um, so no, but, but, so the surgery went great. I had great surgeons. I I thought it was, they thought it was cancer. They were so sure. And they said, we're going to, you know, open you up. We're going to take this thing out. We're going to do a quick 
pathology on it. And if it looks like cancer, we're going to take um, a sixth of your right lung. We're going to take a, there's, your right lung has three lobes and your left lobe, lung has two. Did you know that? Because I didn't. I did not. So they took uh, one sixth of my right lung, which is most of the third lobe. And um, it's called a wedge resection. So I wake up from the surgery and they're like, we had to take part of your lung. And I was like, I had cancer. So I'm like, I was a cancer survivor, you know, and, and, and I needed a break for a long time and life is pretty fucking relentless. I mean, I've, you know, just hit the high points and I didn't even cover, I covered maybe, maybe two thirds, yeah. maybe half, There's other you know, stuff. there's other stuff. That there's you... so many other things. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, so I've experienced life as kind of like a relentless, like, like ride that you just can't get off. Right. And, um, but I can't take a break because I'm a single mom of these boys or whatever. And so, you know, I, I told my friend tree that I was going to be going wait, in wait. for surgery tree. Uh-huh. Okay. That's Portland. <laughs> well, it's a nickname. Oh, okay. I can't I can't say her real name because she's incognito. Okay. I but you. um so um but I do call her Tree. So I told my friend Tree that um that I was gonna get six weeks off of work for this and she she quipped, you know, uh, rich people get sabbaticals and poor people get tumors. <laughs> and <laughs> so I've been calling this my poor man sabbatical. Um so you know, for for nine days, I was a cancer survivor, and I, you know, got out of the hospital, and my boyfriend took great care of me, and my ex-husband was really great about helping with the boys, and people came from far and wide to, you know, what can we do to bring me meals? I mean, it was like the most loved and supported and held in love that I've ever felt in my life, which is kind of remarkable. I mean, in that way, it was the loveliest experience. Um, and, you know, but then the pathology report came back that it was not cancer, that it was, in fact, um, a rare benign tumor, an extremely rare benign tumor, like 0.7% of all tumors are this type of tumor. And um, So where were you so when that, you got that news? I was in my boyfriend's house and on so his couch. On the phone? You get the, you get the call? Yeah. And so what happens yeah. then? And I was like, but, but you took my lung. <laughs> Remember that? Right. <laughs> Cause I, I like my lung. Yeah. <laughs> Can yeah. I have it back then? They didn't, and, and they didn't like, need to? Are... They didn't need to? No. Oh. Uh-uh. They didn't even need to take the tumor. So like, we are so sorry. <laughs> We're sorry we yeah? took part of your lung. <laughs> are you? Are you sorry? Wait, can you, can you, can they, do they, can they re, I mean, can you get, uh, compensated for your lung? <laughs> like, no, no. And you know what? Honestly, I thought I gave it a lot of thought because a few people were like, you can sue them. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I can't because they did exactly what they said they were going to do. They looked at it in a pathology lab while I was splayed out on the table. They did a very quick assessment. It looked to them like a certain type of cancerous tumor called, called a carcinoid, which whatever, you know, but Look, if you had woken me up and been like, we're not sure, do you want us to go ahead and take part of your lung so that way we're sure to get it all or not? I would have been like, yeah, put me back under. And once I realized that, I was like, whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, better safe than sorry. Like, I don't want to have to explain to my 12-year-olds, you know, that, you know, sorry, guys, I'm probably going to, you know, 
be out of here soon. Right. right? Sure. Like that isn't a conversation I want to, I like, that was the worst fear I had of all of it. It's like these, these guys need me. They right. need me and their dad, you know? Right, right, right. I can't even imagine. And that would be awful. So I was relieved, but I was also like, well, shit, you just gave me a $34,000 surgery that I didn't need. <laughs> and then I was also like, but, you know, I do have two more weeks off work. So I am off work for two more weeks. And, you know, I have to go to the gym every day because I have to build up lung capacity. I did smoke for like 20 years. I quit about a year and a half ago. Good for you. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks. Just in um, time. <laughs> right. 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 And actually, it has nothing to do with smoking. But, um, and so your prog- but, your prognosis is full recovery. You're good. You just had a benign- full recovery. This particular type of tumor can grow in other locations. It can metastasize, and even though it's not cancer, it can metastasize in an um, unfortunate location like your heart or your bones. So they have to monitor me for the next five years and make sure it's not growing anywhere else. Okay. Um, but, but, it's, but otherwise, but it's better than the alternative. It's better than the alternative. Yeah, but. Um, going back to handing the universe a um, 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 bullhorn, it's like the first day the boys came home after the surgery, like 10 days after the surgery, they did something and I went to yell at them and I couldn't. Instead, all I could do was sit and take deep breaths, <laughs> right? And like, I had to slow down. I had to ask for help. I mean, I, I can't, I still can't lift 10 pounds, uh, more than 10 pounds for another few weeks. Um, and I have had all of this time alone in my room, in my robe to just think and sort and sleep and sleep. My son said to me recently, mom, are you wearing that makeup you put under your eyes? And I said, no. He goes, huh, you don't have those bags you normally have. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, kid. (laughs) Like, he's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting really good sleep, you know, so I'm like, okay, well, I guess that sorted itself out, didn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, if anybody out there is listening and is a millionaire, I want you to cut a fat check to Gloria immediately. <laughs> Just mail it to her. If anybody deserves you, I feel like you deserve, I don't know. I feel like really. I don't, I don't know about deserve. Oh, come on. You've had, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like if the universe, if the universe were operating uh, according to uh, my... <laughs> interests i feel like mathematically this seems fair i mean my god you've been through a lot and i'm well, so i'm so glad i will say this. this if anybody out there is listening and wants to buy my story piecemeal i'm happy to sell off my family legacy for um uh, for gold yes so, yeah, publishers me. publishers someone <laughs> someone should sign her up for a uh, book deal uh i'm right. re- i'm really glad that this lung tumor turned out to be benign i can't tell you i just found out uh, we should tell people too i just found out today and yeah. it was like a, a big shock to me. And then we started emailing and then I was like, you know, let's get on the phone. And you agreed, um, which I'm very glad you did because it's such a wild story. And I think that, uh, people listening, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like a, like I sort of feel like any kind of trivial bullshit that might be bothering me, you know, immediately pales in comparison but it's um, also it's also a good a good lesson in toughness. You're you're a tough broad. My God, you know you keep going, and uh, that's it's my it's my Dotson. <laughs> it's your yeah, that's right. It's your Dotson. But you know that's a that right there. I think is, um, you know, worth remembering to you know for people who are struggling or whatever. And 
I don't know. It's a hell of a story. Write it all down. I can't wait to read it. Uh, it'll probably be, ha- you know, I'll have to read it while in the fetal position. <laughs> uh, and while wearing like, uh, you know, like a football helmet or something. But I, uh, I don't know. I'm happy that you're, uh, that you're getting well and take good care of yourself. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Great. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. Okay, that's it, folks. That's Gloria Harrison. You can find her online on the Facebook. She is uh, also on Twitter, where her handle is at Gloria Harrison. And you can read uh, several of her essays over at thenervousbreakdown.com. And don't forget to go listen to her uh, on This American Life, episode 494. That's available online. And uh, her essay, uh, once again, is called Let's See How Fast This Baby Can Go. So, uh, you know, what else uh, can I add? to that conversation. What do you say? I don't know what to say. It sort of leaves you speechless. What an incredible amount of stuff for one person to go through and to survive somehow. So, you know, I wish, I I wish Gloria all good things. Uh, She's one of those people. I mean, you wish good things for everybody, hopefully, but she's one of those people that, uh, I feel deserves good things. So if you are out there and you're listening and you have good things, uh, give them to Gloria. If, if for example, you are, uh, in possession of millions or uh, even billions of dollars, uh, I encourage you to send some of them to Gloria immediately. And I should add too, uh, that she did not ask me to say that. I've decided to do that of my own volition. I am encouraging you to shower her with dollars. <laughs> I have her address. Just email me. Letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, you can send her a check. It'll be easy. And uh, if you're a publisher, if you're a publisher out there, you're an editor, uh, a publisher, uh, publishing a titan, a titan of industry, and you are looking to champion a memoir, this is your girl. Okay? She's got the material. <laughs> I promise you, uh, she's going to need an advance. She's going to need a big advance. If you want her to write the thing, she's a single mom. She's got uh, kids. She's got grandchildren. So you're going to have to pony up, but she's got the goods. She's got a story. Do we need any more evidence? I mean, uh, just go listen. If you, if you need more evidence, if you're not convinced, <laughs> uh, then go listen to this American life. You can get some more. There is more believe it or not. Uh, what you just heard in, in my conversation with her, it's the tip of the iceberg. Okay. <laughs> there are more pieces to this puzzle. So uh, there you have it. It's a premium episode just for you, my uh, beloved premium subscribers. You are near and dear to my heart. I appreciate you. I thank you. And I hope you feel like you got your money's worth. I hope you enjoyed your premium experience. And uh, I will talk to you very soon. Mm-hmm.